Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what it has to say to us. We pray that you open our hearts to it and you open up it to our hearts. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Imagine that you are present in Thessalonica or Thessalonica at the time of these events we've just heard. You're an average Greek, let's say an average Greek woman. You've had three children, all are young but healthy. Your husband works for a reasonably lucrative trade partnership. He organizes the movement of copper from certain mines in Serbia down through the trade crossroads of your city. He's away for long stretches of time, but despite your ability to imagine the worst, he always seems to come back. Thessalonica has never been safer than it is in your time, but it's still the first century, and you have the ever-present risk of suffering harm or loss at the hands of criminals and invaders. Life is vulnerable but stable. The gods to you are abstract things. You have a, a shrine to Nike in your house, the goddess of victory, after which Thessalonica is partially named, and another to shrine to Hermes, the god of, among other things, traders and travelers for your husband's sake. Offering sacrifice to each of these is more habit than faith. You've had friends who have lost their husbands despite their faith, but you've also had friends who have lost children perhaps because of their disregard of their gods, so you try and cover your bases. Then these strange men come to town, and they cause a scene with the Jews that causes a scene with everyone else. You come out to hear them. They talk of a God who walked like a man, who was a Jew but opened his arms to the Gentiles, who was killed by the Romans and rose up from the grave miraculously with the power that belongs exclusively to the gods. And not even a God of some mythic past, but a God who was apparently acting in the world, say, 20 years ago and continues to act to your day. He offers a way to heaven and life everlasting. Do you believe what they have to say about him? Or what if instead of being that particular woman, you are a very poor man, a Scythian man, a member of a people who were mighty centuries before this happened, but whose nations were smashed by Alexander the Great and never really quite recovered? You signed up with the Roman army, hoping to become a citizen and therefore gain the military dignity that your unfortunate blood does not natively possess. You fight twice as viciously as your fellows to try and make up for that, and the things that you did still haunt you. But then you lost your eyes to an unlucky swipe of a Germanic spear and were discharged. A friend helped you back to civilization but couldn't babysit you forever, so now you spend your days sitting in the Agora of Thessalonica, listening to the people talking and bartering, and sometimes feeling your way down the street to the synagogue. The Jews that gather there are compelled by their God, their one God, odd as that sounds, in fact, to be charitable, and some of them take that seriously. Then you hear two men causing a fuss among the Jews. They say that the one God sent his son to establish the kingdom of heaven on earth, that all the tribes of all the nations are his children, that all may have forgiveness for the terrible things they have done if they only seek the risen king who they say gives life to the lifeless and sight to the blind. Do you believe what they are saying about him? Or finally, perhaps you are a wealthy Jew. You grew up in Greek society under the Roman heel, but in a Jewish family. The Greeks don't like you, and you don't particularly like them. The burden of being one of God's special people is isolating. And a long history of being at odds with the Gentiles, of them embracing your people and then 
purging and pushing them away has given you a healthy skepticism for what they have in store for you. Your family's grown wealthy in spite of the oppression around them. The Jewish community looks after itself, and so you are permitted to succeed in the Gentile world because of that. And you focus your attention on living appropriately in the Jewish world as well. You have a young wife and your first child, a son, was born last week. Mazel tov. You are successful, hardworking, generous to the synagogue, cooperative with the Romans. And then you hear about two men talking about the events of Jerusalem 20 years earlier and their so-called Messiah that has come, disrespecting the temple, claiming that he was the son of God and supposedly who rose again after his death. He offers once for all forgiveness for sins, not just for the successful or the hardworking or the generous or even just to the Jewish, but to all those willing to call themselves by his name. Now you have relatives who have warned you about this cult and even some who have been taken in by it. Your wife to your dismay has displayed interest in this Jesus whose explicit purpose was to overturn notions of the supreme importance of family and success and religion and to offer a kind of an altered form of all of those to people who would listen to him. Do you believe what they're saying about him? This passage describes a scene that happens over and over again in Acts, and indeed over and over again throughout all of Christian history, indeed today. The people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Some react positively, others react very, very badly to the same message. The good news, despite how good it is, gets a mixed reaction. And that's a weird thing for good news to get. You would think good news would get a good reaction. The fundamental offer that God gives through Jesus should be a no-brainer. Do you want to be forgiven for your sins, embraced by the beating, love-filled heart of the universe, find your purpose in life, experience joy and satisfaction like you've never known, unlock profound mysteries of the universe, and have the opportunity to deliver a gift of that same quality to everyone you know and love, and then live forever? Or do you want to remain who and what you are, which, good or bad, is not as good as what you've just been offered, and then die forever? That's not a tough choice. A friend from Bible college many years ago illustrated to me like this. He said, do you want to have a million dollars or do you want to be beaten to death? It's a black and white difference, a heaven and hell difference. So why does the mob in Jesus' day and the crowd in Paul's day and the thousands and thousands of people we meet in our own lives today encounter people who keep choosing hell when presented with the same message? This is an important question because we are called to tell the good news. To tell of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And if this scene in Acts 17, where some people react in joy and some react in rage, if that doesn't make sense to you, and you're not at peace with that, then you're going to be afraid to tell that good news. What if someone you love hears about the gospel and then they reject it? That's a terrifying thought. What do you do with a loved one who rejects the gospel? Do you keep bringing it up over and over again, hoping they give way until they cut you out of their life? Or do you stop bringing it up and try not to think about it and the idea of an eternity without them? How do you live with the thought that people you love are choosing hell over heaven? And the truth is, you don't really 
live with it. It eats at you, it makes you sick, and then eventually you learn to stop thinking about it. Because the thought of losing the people that you love will tarnish the gates of heaven and you just can't think about it. It's a messy divorce for the heart and the soul. Your faith in God goes one way, your loved one goes the other, and you spend time with each, but it's just too painful to catch them in the same room together. And this is a killer for Christians. This failure to find peace with the way that people respond to the gospel and the people in our lives who we love responding to the gospel is enormously powerful as a destroyer of faith and a limiter of young belief. And it's more dangerous to us today than ever because more than ever we live in an age that is defined by measurements and boundaries and facts and customs and logical sequences of events. More so than has ever happened in any age in the world. Some of it's in our laws, some of it's just in our learned behavior. But you learn to do things right. Then you're corrected if you're doing them wrong. And then you do them right. When you drive in local streets, the speed is 50 unless otherwise notified. When someone you don't know very well is talking to you and they accidentally spit a little bit on your face, they know it and you know it. Neither of you mention it. They'll politely find an excuse to look away and you will discreetly wipe your face and you will go on as if it had never happened. When you get hurt, you cry out or you make a phone call and specially trained people will come and make you better. When the power goes off, you will patiently wait for it to turn back on again unless you're particularly courageous and then you will check the switchboard first. And logically then, when someone tells you that you can have eternal life for free, you take the eternal life. But sometimes they don't. And that doesn't make sense. And we think of ourselves as individuals moving through the world, gathering information that will help us make better decisions. The more information we gather, the better we are at making those decisions. And when someone gives you information that is useful, that promises a better outcome, you adjust your behavior. And if you tell someone something useful and they ignore it, we call them stupid and irrational. But the truth is that's a bad way to look at the world and a bad way to look at the people in it. We are not just information gathering units. We're not even primarily information gatherers. We are not thinking creatures first that feel second. We are feeling creatures first that think second. And the reaction of the heart and soul will override the mind every time. How many times have you done something which you might in retrospect describe as stupid or irrational, even though you knew it was stupid or irrational. Probably a lot, if we're honest. Feels like even more when you're a teenager, and I don't mean that to be mean to the teenagers, because everyone who's past that age in their life remembers doing the same dumb things when they were a teenager. But teens, if you can keep it down to maybe one particularly stupid thing you know you shouldn't do, that you actually do each day, you're doing a pretty good job. But we know exactly what this sensation is. The Bible talks about it as a function of the flesh. It's like you're living your life, sharing your body with an impulsive, idiot version of yourself. An idiot version of yourself who's unable to think things through and acts exclusively on feeling and impulse. And sometimes you can contain it, but you can't keep your guard up all the time. And this is a phenomenon that people experience in and out of the kingdom. It simply becomes more real and more consequential when that flesh is warring with the Spirit of God inside you. And we see the flesh in operation in this passage. 
Paul and Silas bring the message to Thessalonica. Jesus is the Son of God. He conquered death. He offers us passage to God and sonship in glory and eternal life. And he asks that we stop trying to find our meaning and identity in other things and simply rely on him. Who should we expect to respond best to the information that the Savior of the Jewish faith, but now for everyone, has come? Theoretically, the Jews. It is their Messiah who has come after all. He's fulfilled their Old Testament prophecies. But the picture we get is very much different from this. It's very much the same as the way that when Jesus entered into the world and he began ministering in Judea, a handful of the Jews got it and responded to what was being said. But most became resentful and rejected that message. The passage here with Paul and Silas, says that those Jews became jealous. The implication is they were fired up and agitated. They hate this message. They may not even know why they hate this message. But it's not an intellectual rejection. It's a gut reaction. And they round up a mob and they drag Jason and some other Christians on behalf of, as kind of a proxy for Paul and Silas before the city officials, and they lie saying, they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. Now, anyone can see, with just a little bit of effort, that the way in which Jesus is king is not the same way in which Caesar was king. That's why none of us loses any sleep over having Queen Elizabeth on our currency. And that is why when Jesus was set to be crucified by Pilate, Pilate said he's done nothing wrong and washed his hands of the affair before ordering that execution to satisfy the mob. These Thessalonian Jews are lying to try to get these guys arrested for bringing the good news. Why? Because the good news is just not only good news. It's good news that requires you to completely give up on the way that you looked at the world if you accept it. It's the total demolition of your life as you know it. It comes with a promise of something better but without a life lived with some experience of that life in the good news, that promise can't really mean anything to our gut reaction. It's too far off, too abstract, too untouchable. You have to take it on faith that the way that you built your world and populated it with goals you wanted and things that were meaningful to you and memories that you treasured and sacrifices that you made, that that world is wrong and needs to come down. If you're a healthy, content Jewish guy who has succeeded at the challenges the Gentiles have put in your way, who honors God in the way that his fathers did, and whose life is defined by family and synagogue and rewarded work, you might not be quite that ready to break down your world. You might, in fact, find it a little too convenient that these raggedy, penniless Jews who have been hounded out of Jewish society are saying that the way to God is to become raggedy and penniless and to hold no distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. For them to say that your accomplishments are worth nothing is the most natural thing for them because they have accomplished nothing. And now they're bringing this nonsense into your city, your world, where things were fine and people are listening to them. And the world you were doing pretty well in is changing and transforming around you into something unfamiliar and threatening. This whole first shall be last and last shall be first thing looks really good if you happen to be last. It starts looking like a bad deal if you think you're maybe coming first. 
And of course, they don't want to believe it. The future they talk about doesn't exist yet, but they're saying that the past that you lived through and the presence you're in right now are wrong. Now, some of that is pride. Most of that is fear. And that's how it works for our family and friends today, too. Those who have a good life, who have dreams and aspirations they are working toward, who have built their own worlds out of things that seem to be holding up, if they're not confronted by the gospel as it comes from your lips, then they haven't heard it completely, haven't heard it right and understood what it means. Because you're telling them that their life is a lie. And they are not who they are supposed to be. They're not even who they think they are. The things that secure them are weak at best and warped at worst. The dreams they have are doomed to failure or a success so hollow it may as well be considered failure. People would rather hear that they have terminal cancer than hear this. At least if you're dying, you can look back on the things that you have done with some sense of accomplishment. But the gospel says all those things are meaningless without a relationship with God. And the only way to have that relationship is through his son. But what if you're not the successful Jewish guy, but you're the blind, begging Scythian? Here comes the good news. Everything you knew about the world was wrong. Everything you valued and sought for in your life is meaningless. All of your dreams are doomed to failure. Yes, obviously. Because here you are, wretched and ruined, with nothing to show for all your sacrifices. Obviously, all your plans and ideas were built on some faulty foundation because your whole world has collapsed. Of course it's wrong, but you're telling me that there's another way to understand it. That the things of this life are temporary, that possessions are fleeting, that the kingdom of God welcomes anyone willing to call in the name of Jesus Christ? Well, that's some good news, man. Because nothing else seems to be working. And if you get given a way to understand the universe that makes sense, that'd be blessing enough. But one that elevates you to the status of a child of God? That's as good a news as anyone could ever hope for. That's as welcome and miraculous as any news could possibly be to a man who has nothing. And so likewise, we hear the most amazing testimonies today. This one is a, a gang leader who was so overwhelmed by rage in their heart until Jesus came into their heart and set them free. Or one who was a prostitute and a heroin addict chasing the ghost of her father until the Son of God opened the way to her father in heaven. Or another one who was a rock star who had everything and sucked everything dry of all it had to offer and then went half insane trying to fill the unfillable void in his heart until the Spirit of God poured in and filled it. People find Jesus not as a useful bit of information to add to their life, but only after crawling out of the ash and the rubble of the life they built on shifting sand. This is why Jesus is the rock, the cornerstone, the foundation, the stable thing upon which anything else stable in your world must be built. And what about the Greek woman with the pretty safe life, the fairly promising future, but no stranger to fear or uncertainty, like most people then and perhaps most people now? When she hears the good news, that the world that you built for yourself is a lie, that its promises are empty, and reliance upon those promises is death. She may ignore it for now, but she won't forget it. Or she may listen for now, but she won't accept it. 
But some weeks or years later when her world falls apart, because it always does for all of us, that's when it'll make the difference. When her husband doesn't come home after all, or when her children catch a fever they won't live through, or when she loses the house to invaders or her freedom to slavers, then she'll feel the earth moving under her feet and look for somewhere sound and firm to stand. And when she looks, she will see a man who was miserable and friendless on the street, given care and dignity. And many Jews who once would never eat with Gentiles now feasting with them like family. And many prominent Greek women who married well and raised fine children and found that after they had completed these peaks of the womanly experience, life carried on for some reason. And they found that reason in serving the kingdom of God. And she'll be forced to conclude that these people, called the church, have gotten something very, very right in the way they love each other. And if they're right about that, what else might they be right about? This is evangelism. This is the task of bringing the good news to the people who haven't heard it. It's more than just a package of information. It can't fit on a flyer or a tract. It can't even fit in the Bible altogether because it's not just words. There's a lived component to it. If the gospel is the foundation of your life, then everything else you do will present it. And with that comes the part that no one but God can do, and that is bring the sinner to a place and a time where their plans have turned to dust and the things they have relied on have abandoned them. That's the work by the Spirit of God to prepare the heart for the gospel. And it's God's work through his people to display the gospel in how they live and how they love one another and how they call upon the name of their Savior. God's plan for Thessalonica wasn't just to expose them to the spoken message of Jesus' resurrection. He planted a church there which grew, which survived through persecutions and trials to become part of the heartland of ancient Christianity. This passage today reminds us of the origins of that church. And over the next several weeks, we'll read through the letters that Paul wrote to that church to guide them as they grew together. They made mistakes, but they loved the Lord. And with that as their foundation, their lives become the language that the gospel is written in. And that's true for us. That's a peace that we, as the people of God, have access to. To the knowledge that even though someone close to you might have heard the words of the gospel and rejected it, hope is not lost for them. The good news has always been a truth too big to be told in a sentence or in a tract. It's always been a truth so big it must be told across time. You can have faith that God will be working in them, in their lives, in their hearts, in the things they have built in their life that will inevitably fail them. You don't need to despair when they seem to choose hell over heaven. More likely than not, they aren't ready to understand yet. But make no mistake, long before they die, hell will work its way into their life. And when their parents die, or their marriage comes apart, or the cancer comes back, and when hell is burning down their life, that's when they need to be able to see the heaven shining through in yours. You call yourself by the name of Jesus. If you call yourself a Christian, I invite you to take a moment now to think about someone 
like that, who is close to your heart, but who doesn't know the gospel. Perhaps you've prayed for them every day for 30 years. Perhaps you should have been praying for them, but the fear that that prayer might not be answered kept you from doing so. Think of someone that you love that doesn't know the truth about Jesus. And in a moment, when we pray, we'll pray that God will give us the courage to speak the gospel to them when he's appointed us to do so and the wisdom to enact the gospel in our life, in the way that we live, so that when they have their dark hours, they'll be able to see the light of the world shining in us. If you don't call yourself a Christian and you're ready tonight to consider letting go of the dreams and the grudges and the silly things that you've based your life upon, things which have failed you before and will fail you again, then don't leave this room lying to yourself that that doesn't matter. Talk to the friend or family member who brought you about why they believe the good news or if you came alone tonight, even better pick someone in this room and make a friend. Ask them for their story. Why do they believe the good news? And if you're ready to call yourself by the name of Jesus for the first time tonight, then I'd love to meet you after the service and pray with you. But for now, welcome home. And please join the rest of us as we bow ahead in prayer. Father God, your son came into the world and he died to pay the price for our sin and he rose again in victory over death. And what an incredible message that is. But we know incredible as it is how it can divide people. Your son said he came not to bring peace but a sword and to see fathers turned against sons and daughters against mothers and the truth is that some people react very badly to the truth. They may fight against it or simply not relate to it or understand it. But give us the strength to love through in those divided relationships, God. Give us the wisdom to know how to speak and how to time that speech, how to live your gospel to work your plan through us for them. Give us patience and peace, Father, so that we can be part of your plan to bring the gospel to those in our lives who haven't heard it. For those of us whose lives are built still on some of these temporary things, flawed and failing as they are, dreams of material success or relationships that aren't grounded in you, give us the courage to examine what we believe and the wisdom to test our own assumptions and the judgment to test the value of the good news you give to know its real value. And Lord, you know if those if there are those here tonight, Lord, who are ready to call themselves by your name for the first time, search their hearts, Father. Forgive their sins. Draw them to you. Fill them with your spirit. Bind them to your people. Show them what it is to live a life grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the expectation of glory to come. And we ask your blessing tonight in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen.